Hi, I'm Bob Fisher, and I'm your host today on This is Design Intelligence. Known for seamlessly interweaving sustainable landscapes, art, and architecture, Andrea Cochran is the founding partner of Andrea Cochran Landscape Architecture and a recipient of numerous awards, including the 2023 Design Futures Council Lifetime Achievement Award. On this edition of This is Design Intelligence, she talks about the path that led her to the profession, the relationship between art and design, and why she thinks landscape architects are uniquely situated to help solve some of our most complex environmental problems. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Andrea Cochran, welcome to This is Design Intelligence. It's really an honor to be with you, and uh, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your experiences and your perspectives with our audience. Thanks so much, Bob. It's just so exciting to be here, and I'm so happy to share with you some of the experiences I've had. And just, I'm so thankful to have received the Lifetime Achievement Award. It came as a really a surprise to me. I know I'm the first landscape architect, and it's great to see our profession being recognized. So I'm, I'm really honored. Thank you. Well, we are really honored that you uh, came to be with us and did accept that award from us. And you know, it's, it's interesting because you and I had a few conversations in Atlanta where you actually received the award. And one of the thoughts that I had was all about the paths in life that we choose, right? Our work paths and our life paths. And these work and life paths often look one way when we're on them, you know, when we're walking through those experiences. And they look another way when we look back on them. So as you think about your career and the development of your work, how does the path look different today, looking back on it, than it did when you were walking it? You know, I, I never would have imagined at the beginning that I was going to be as successful as I was. I mean, I think I had early ideas like, well, maybe, you know, ultimately I'd have a little studio with three people and we'd do some projects. It just never occurred to me that the work would be appreciated and and recognize the way it has been. And and I think, and I, I'm a late bloomer. I mean, early, early on, I wanted to go to art school. My parents told me I had to get a career and make money. And so I was going to become a veterinarian. And then through a series of mishaps in college, I found landscape architecture. And suddenly that was a great way to incorporate my two interests in science and art. And so Landscape architecture turned out to be the perfect career for me, and um, it's not something I ever would have pictured as a kid. I mean, nobody tells you about landscape architects, and your guidance counselor is not going to tell you to be a landscape architect. They're going to say, I don't know, that, that it's not something that pops into their minds. So early on, I had no idea. I knew I, I would love to have done something creative, but I just never knew about landscape architecture. And then when I entered the profession, you know, I was in a class with a, a bunch of guys who were mostly nursery owners, kids, and, you know, at Rutgers. And, you know, it was like four women out of a class of 45. It was pretty rough and tumble. And I don't really think I had a good idea what design was. And then I, later at Harvard, I learned more about design. At Harvard, it was a very competitive environment. And everybody had done really well in undergraduate school, and then they came there. And I didn't really think that I rose to the top at that level. And so 
I think I'm one of those people that just learns by doing, and I don't come up with an idea right out of the gate. And so I, I think I kind of left there, and I, I was traumatized for years after that. I, cu- I, I couldn't go back to reunions for a long time because I just felt like, I wasn't as successful as I should be or could be or others were. So it took me a long time to find my voice. And that involved working at different firms early in my career and and kind of not being that fulfilled because big, big projects, you didn't get to see them build. Some of the projects were in the Middle East. And as a woman, I couldn't visit them because you can't go to Saudi Arabia as a single woman, or at least you couldn't then. And so it was it was a, a long period of frustration and especially working on large projects, which really were divorced from art. They were more planning oriented. And then when I, I moved to California, I found my voice here. And but that again was a slower process. Initially I worked for some local firms and uh, you know architecture firms as well as landscape firms. And then the, everything started to come together when I started working at collaborative partnerships and then really building things and sort of seeing them built and then sort of establishing my own voice. So several times you talked about the concept of finding your voice. And I think everybody who has an art or design background can kind of relate to that or might have an idea in their head of what that is. But I wonder if everybody's idea of finding your voice is the same. For you, what did that mean? Yeah, I think I started working in a design-build collaborative partnership and in that partnership, the work was getting built. And I think having worked on these very, very large planning projects and and kind of very large urban design projects, it takes so long from that initial design drawing to, you know, it could be years before it gets built. And you there's no iterative loop. There's no, you know, drawing a line and saying, oh, that's a pretty line, or I, I need to do this or do that. I mean, you you kind of, as, a, as an artist, you need to see your work built to evaluate it critically. And for me, doing the design build was a, a very quick way to, you design it and it might get built two weeks later. So this sort of process of thinking and then making and then seeing it built was 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 accelerated. And I think that's when I was able to find my voice because I thought, oh, this, like I get confidence in that what I was doing was actually looking good or, you know, or like, oh, I would have done this differently, but then I would apply that the next time. So it was a very quick thing. And I, I wished I had thought about that. When I was earlier in my profession, I would take jobs because I thought that was a good job and that's what I should do. It was a lot of the good girl kind of, you know, you need to take this, you need to do this, and then like one step in front of the other. And I don't think I ever would have thought of design build as sort of a uh, a good step forward career-wise. Like that was not a sexy, you weren't working on big, important projects, but more of small scale, intimate details. But to me, that was, that was, that was my education more than Harvard or more than Rutgers or, you know, all the other things together, everything kind of pulled together, you know, all that other background um, kind of came together and I started actually doing. Well, that makes a lot of sense because if you had been working on projects that you never saw manifest themselves in the real world, you never got to experience them as a user of the space would or as someone who occupied that space would. So I imagine it was very, very helpful to actually go into one of the environments that you'd created so that you were surrounded by it and you could you could perceive it in its in its final 
form? I'll tell you, I think what a lot of designers get wrong is scale, especially younger designers. I, in the office, I'm always saying, if you do this walkway, is how wide, you know, you draw it on the ground, put it, put a piece of tape on the ground and look at it. And, you know, how high is this room? Like we have markers in our office about scale and size because that is really important. And scale outside is very different than scale inside. And so thinking about detail, texture, scale, all those things are really, really important, how you perceive space. So you and I both have, and we talked about this when we were in Atlanta, you and I both have a background in art originally, but wound up in various forms of design. And one of the things I'm curious about is what do you feel like is the right relationship between art and design? How is it that they overlap and how is it that they need to be different? Yeah, it's a really good question because Early on, when I thought I wanted to be an artist, I, I realized now I could never have been an artist because an artist, you have a self-generated idea of what the work will be. You have sometimes art needs to be social, political, provocative. It's causing people to think about things in a new way. And I think that when you are a designer, you actually have a client and you have functional concerns that you need to address or the, the design will fail. If it's not functional, then it doesn't matter how beautiful it is, it will fail. And for me, what, what is so good about design is that it gives me an armature. I'm not staring at the blank canvas trying to come up with an idea. And the client is someone that has their own narrative, you know, whether it's a developer or a private client they have something in their mind, and most people can't express that. They ha don't have the tools to talk about visual things, but they, they can talk about how they want it to be, or they, they have these sort of vague kind of ways of, of talking about it or, or functional aspects that they want to address. But design you know, really is about, sort of for me, is about being a good listener, trying to sort through what they're saying to what they really want and then make that a reality. And then that becomes a kind of a collaborative dance between the two of us or the, the group of the clients and, and our, our office to create something that is meaningful and kind of hits the mark of what they want. So I think really being a good listener, you have to have a healthy ego, but you can't push people outside their boundaries. They have boundaries and you can't bring them from zero to a hundred. You can maybe bring them from zero to 50, but with, you know, you have your own design aesthetic that you want. And I think they've hired you for, but then you need to take that and try and make it better than what they could ever have imagined. So I think in art, it's really, there is no client. I think, I just think most good artists are thinking about who's going to buy their work. They, they're making something because they have this creative energy that they want to express. And so for me, that, that just having those, those parameters and the, not facing that blank canvas um, and, and, and having a, a real client helps me make my work. And I think I do my best work with clients that I've worked with before. There's a certain level of trust because then you can push them from 50 to maybe 75 or maybe even 100 because they, they believe in you and they, they, they trust you. So I think that we do do a lot of work with repeat clients. And I think that's where sometimes we do our best work because we're allowed to push the boundaries a little bit. 
So when you're thinking about the creative process and the design work that you do, how much of it is drawing something out of other people and how much of it is you bringing something to them? I think it varies by project and by client. Some clients are very specific about what they want and some of them are just, they, they're, they're kind of vague and you know, you're just trying to give them something to hang on to. So when you talked about getting your voice and, and realizing what your voice was, is that the same thing as developing a personal creative vision? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think I think it is the same thing. I think we all do that. And, and for me, I, I think that it comes from making things and seeing them built, but it also comes from looking at other work, either, you know, other designers. I mean, for me, I worked for architects for a number of years early in my career. I think architecture, working with architects for me was was helpful because Architects are, are more rigid than landscape architects in general. It's more structural. It's less sort of out there trying to engage all these different larger environments and all those things. So I think for me, that was a helpful uh, learning experience to kind of work within a more rigid structure and then break out of it because that, again, helped me because it, it wasn't like facing this sort of complete blank canvas, but it was about creating space with structure. And of course, in landscape, structure is much more ephemeral or permeable, and we don't have the same structural tools. We're not building giant walls, and typically we're using carving, and we're using the idea of scrim and layering with plant material, or and we have just very minimal materials. And in my work, I've been influenced a lot by looking at the work of minimalist artists or land artists that have used land and either carving, or like in Robert Irwin's work, the idea of scrim and layering, or... or um, creating a, a window of that you view something through. And so I think that's a really an important influence on me. And, and I think the other thing, I mean, it's a little bit off the topic of, of that, but when you are in landscape, you're moving through the space. You're not typically sitting in a space. We're sitting in a room talking to each other or someone's sitting in a cafe or, you know, or working at a desk. When you're in the landscape, you're often walking through it. Sometimes you may settle there for a while and sit at a bench or be out, you know, gardening. But a landscape is really something that's very fluid and very, there's almost a kinetic quality to your experience or kinesiological experience of how it feels underfoot and how does gravel feel different from walking on that versus stone or, or concrete. So there's a whole body experience. And, it, and my, my thinking about work, it's really about that whole body experience. There's scent, there's the wind on your face. There's a whole kind of a body experience that I think in a successful landscape, you build on those, those more ephemeral qualities, how light hits a wall or a shadow of a tree on a wall or on the ground. All those things enhance what can be a sort of very simple environment and create a lot of interest and, and variability over the course of time. And I think following the passage of time is another thing that we have in the landscape that we don't have in architecture. So this idea of what something looks like in the spring versus the summer versus the winter is all very, very different. And, and, and trying to capitalize on those differences so that as someone experiences that landscape, they're really viewing it almost with fresh eyes in a different season. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating thought. I, I can see exactly what you're saying with landscape being something that is continually changing. I mean, it changes minute to minute, it changes season to season, and it seems like you have to have quite a bit of flexibility when you are trying to create a successful landscape design uh, because you can't control a lot of the, the factors that go into how somebody experiences it. That's really true. I always say if you if you're a control freak, you can't be a landscape architect because you really <laughs> there's very little. I mean, you could design like a whole alley of trees and have a hurricane come through and wipe out half of them. You know, you have your expectations, but you can't control nature. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about some different aspects of your career. Uh, one of them is that in much of your working life, you've either been in your own firm or in firms where you were a named partner. And why was that a better path for you than where you started, which was, you know, working for some architects and working in the design build and all that sort of thing? You know, I think what happened is I <laughs> I was working for a firm, uh, an urban design firm, building projects. And then they decided, and I had worked with them designing American Embassy in Bahrain. And at, after that, project ended, they laid off most of the design staff and decided to focus more on urban design. There's been a sort of a change in ownership of the firm. And so I was laid off. And sometimes I think you need to get kicked out of the nest. It's very easy to have a job and get a regular paycheck and think, you know, I could be doing this or that, but you don't really leave until some people do, but I wasn't that I didn't plan well and well, I'm not a good planner. So and um and I and I think there was this fear that would I be able to get enough money to support myself and do all that? So when I got laid off, I started a firm with a, a friend and we did some small projects. And then she left the Bay Area and moved with her husband to Washington, D.C., where he was a lobbyist for an environmental group. And so there I was. And I, you know, I'd been in California a few years and I didn't really have the contacts. And I worked on these giant projects. And no one was going to hire me to like run this giant planning projects that, that I had worked on in the past. And so I didn't really know what to do. And I started looking around and thinking, well, who would I like to work for? And there was no one. You know, there were firms that, there was one firm that I admired, but I knew that as a woman, I wasn't really going to get very far in that firm. Mm. And I, I knew I didn't do well in a corporate environment. I just knew that that was not, I'd learned enough about working in sort of mid-sized firms to know that I wasn't going to do well in a large firm. And so I thought, well, what, what am I going to do? It was sort of so by default, I started working on my own and realized that was the good path. And then working in, as a partner in this design build firm, then eventually leaving and starting my own firm, I had the, the contacts and enough to build the practice. But it was even then, the first project, when I first left and I went on my own, I took this little job because I needed the money and I thought I will never tell anybody I did this project because it's so horrible. But I, I did it and I got paid. And I remember paying my mortgage with that check and thinking, okay, what's next? And then I was given the opportunity to design this hotel in the wine country and I submitted a proposal and the fee was like $50,000. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I can live on $50,000. I can do that. And so that gave me the stability to then launch the firm. But 
I never planned well. I didn't have a big savings. You know, I was a landscape architect working in these firms. I wasn't making a ton of money. And so, and I living in a very expensive environment of San Francisco, it was very touch and go. And I, I guess in, in retrospect, it was kind of gutsy. But at the time, I really felt like I had no other choice, that it was either do that or... In, in some ways, it reminds me of what you said about how you design, where you really learn by doing. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, you know, it makes a lot of sense that you would have to try out all these different modes of working before you realize that the real fit for you was, uh, you know, was either having your own firm or, or you know, being in with a partner or something where you were, it was really your organization in some ways. Yeah, basically kind of a, a quiet person and trying to shine in a firm where that's large, where you're I wouldn't have done well. I needed to have the work speak for itself. And so that's how I was able to build the practice. So how big is the practice right now? We're 16 people. Mm -hmm. And we've been pretty much about that size for a long time. I, I think it would be nice to get to maybe 20 people. I mean, we have the ability to work on a range of projects from pretty good-sized projects to small, more intimate projects. And we'd like to keep the balance of work and our projects between high-end residential work, where we're like on a small scale, to affordable housing, to hotels, wineries, corporate campuses. So one informs the other. There's a cross-pollinization. So we're able to do it. It's a, it's a nice size, I think, for us to be nimble. And it also is very nimble in a bad economy. We've never had to lay anyone off. And we've been able to stay secure by keeping a balance of project types. Well, that's fantastic. So earlier we talked about creative vision. But, you know, when you're assembling a team, like to do projects of the size that you want to do them now, you're having to get other people to come and join you and to, you know, give the best of their talents and their intellect to the work. What is the role of creative vision in actually bringing people together? Currently now, I have a, a, a business partner, Emily Rylander, who's worked with me for over 20 years. And Emily has slightly different vision for the kinds of projects she wants to work on, which is great because it's a very collaborative, covers more bases in terms of the kind of work we do. I think with, with Emily, I have a lot of trust in what she does and for years of working together. So often she has her own projects and I'm you know, we will collaborate a little bit on it, but this is sort of based on years of trust that I've, she kind of has launched and is responsible for managing quite a few of the projects under her own umbrella. But then there are all the other people in the office, and the, the people that we work with tend to be, I think the, the best people in the office are, are very multidisciplined. They, 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 they're good designers. They know how to build things. They're interested in in the same things that we are but they're very broad kind of people they're not yeah they're multi-talented multi-talented right and that that seems to work the best we have a really great group of people now so we work together with each of the people in the office on like teams on different projects and we collaborate and and work i look at myself as kind of like the um conductor i'm not sort of sitting down initially and doing a design and people in the office generate designs. And then I'm like the critic that will kind of make sure that it sort of follows a vision and that it, it's part of what our, I guess you would say, brand is. Or, but 
so I, I feel like I'm like the studio critic in in the office that that does that. So the projects, I think there's a consistency to the projects, and I might have a few ideas initially of what I think it should be, and express that to the team. But then they're really working the details, and the, you know, and the, like they're working on the design itself, and then meet with me and check in and talk about how we're going to move forward. So it's pretty collaborative. We do a lot, and we draw things first, but then we quickly move to computer models so that often we'll be sitting there with the designer in the office and myself and and the younger designer that's doing the uh, modeling. And we'll actually be saying, well, what if we add this or what if we do this? So it's it's very much a three-dimensional from the get-go, even at a very early age using SketchUp and then as we progress, becoming more refined. But, you know, it's just these small teams that we work together to create them. And then we try to instill a sense of like allowing some of the younger staff to go to job sites to see things built. So they're learning what I couldn't learn by working on the kinds of projects I did that they're they're getting out there and seeing. Yeah, I was gonna it, I, I was gonna say it sounds like you're you're making sure that they didn't have the holes in their design education that you felt you might have had very early on. And the process that you described sounds like a great way to balance individual creative contribution and an individual's creative vision with that of the whole team and the whole group and and I'm assuming also even the client. Yeah, well, that's the other part that I think is really important is that on our projects, we often are, are brought onto the project by an architect. We have a lot of repeat architects that we, we do work with because we are very collaborative. And the goal at the end is that the project looks seamless from, you know, like from inside to outside so that there doesn't look like there were two hands at work. And so the earlier we're, we're involved in the process, the better the project is, especially in terms of siting and grading and siting the buildings and grading and, and all that, because I think landscape architects excel at that. But really, when we can like bounce ideas back and forth, you know, about materiality or the size of spaces or the use of the, everything, it, it should look as if it's one hand and we're very collaborative that way. And I think that to me is exciting because we don't all come up with the ideas ourselves, but by working with other designers, lighting designers, architects, it, it, it pushes the boundaries. You know, you, you th you, they think of something that you wouldn't have thought of. And I think that's pretty exciting. So the work can look different. I think if you look at our work, there's a kind of quietness and a kind of timelessness that is pervasive. But I also think that the projects look very, very different from one another. And I think that comes from the fact that their client, architect, site, what the environment is like, all those things factor into what we don't want to do is do cookie cutter. Uh, it looks like we haven't really been thoughtful about it. Sure. Well, it, it sounds like you've got a lot of people contributing to kind of the armature of the design that you do. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to zoom out for a minute and talk about uh, the the profession generally and get some of your thoughts on what you have seen change from the beginning of your career to where you are today in the profession? Well, when I started working, I thought that, you know, landscape architects were generalists and that, and we are generalists and that we knew something about horticulture, something about environmental science, something about civil engineering, architecture, but we weren't really experts in any of those fields, but we knew 
We had a broad, broad background. And now I see that broad, diverse background as an asset. I think for a long time, landscape architecture wasn't really recognized as sort of, you know, we were kind of like the jack of all trades, master of none. And, and, and now I think that given the complex environmental problems we have, aging infrastructure, sea level rise, how we use land in ways that are much more appropriate for rising sea levels and lack of water in places, that landscape architects are uniquely situated to provide the guidance to lead these complex teams. And so I think that landscape architecture is really entering its own as a profession, that it's coming where these skills that we've had for generations are now applied at a broader scale that can actually have big impact on the environment. Really, so the the conditions in which you are working sort of caught up with the broad base of skills that you had, had been assembling. Yeah, I think so, yeah. So what do you think is the trajectory in the future for the profession? How do you think it'll be changing in the coming years? Wow, I, I think that there's a lot of diversity inclusion and you know that needs to happen and I think our firm and a lot of firms have been trying to help bring people from different backgrounds to become more involved because there is a whole social aspect that as as we become more urbanized there are, there are cities that need places for people to go parks play areas and we need people that have grown up in those cultures to be able to give back and then also underserved communities that also are the ones that are the most victims of of sea level rise, climate change, those are the people that need the most help. So I'm, I'm hoping that politically that landscape architecture can become more present, more effective at initiating change. And because I think we as a profession have a lot to offer. I do think also that I'm hoping, you know, I was thinking about COVID and, you know, and how we work differently today. And I think women in the profession, you know, there are a lot of women that graduate with degrees more than men in in landscape architecture right now and both undergraduate and graduate. So how does it happen that very few of them rise to the top? So I think COVID remote work and you know that has totally changed the way we all work and I think that has given people a little better work life balance. I'd like to see how in in 10 years how that has affected like women's position in the profession because they have more flexibility to be with families and 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 also have a career and not have to step aside to be a, a parent. So, I don't know, I think there's a lot of interesting things about work and the way work has changed in general that also I think is affecting the profession. So, if you were to go back and and talk to 20-year-old Andy, what would you tell her? I think I would say, do what you do that gives you pleasure and fulfillment and don't think about what you should be doing and follow your passion more than take jobs that you think you should take. Um, I think that's what I would do. And as I said, I was a late bloomer. So I I think had I followed that advice early on, I probably would have saved a lot of years of frustration and um, been a lot happier. I mean, I'm extremely happy now and really proud of what we've done as our office collectively, but I just think if I had known that advice earlier, it would have helped me. So what does the future hold for you? 
You know, it's interesting. We're in a, right now, we're in a position of looking at transition changing. I, I think I'll always work. I love what I do, but I was looking at a friend used to say that I would, she thought I'd be like Lawrence Halpern with a patch and a cane. And I, I don't think that <laughs> I don't want to hang on to the bitter end, but I, I do think that this year I'm going to start working four days a week and try and give more people opportunities where we're working, we're working with a team of ownership transition so that people who've been with the firm for a while and have shown their abilities to lead can take more of a leadership role in terms of being out in the world and working with them to bring in work. And, you know, so there's a whole process that we're working on transition-wise to to bring that in. As I said, Emily became a partner probably five years ago. And so that that was the first step in that role and, and others will be joining hopefully the next year or so. So Well, for, for someone who says that she's not that much of a planner, it sounds like you're laying a great groundwork for the future of the firm. Well, if you talk to people who work in transition planning, I should have started this 10 years ago. But <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the, that's it's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to give your insights and your experience. There's so much I feel that our audience has to learn from the perspective that you've gained. And I really appreciate you spending this time with us. Well, thank you, Bob. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.